So uh, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, I have to say, usually between 6.30 and 7 p.m., I am trying to get two very boisterous little boys to go to bed. So half an hour of silent meditation was complete bliss. And I could have sat there for hours longer. It was great. So thank you. That was a great start. Um, <clears throat> it's a great honor to um, speak here at the London Meditatio Center this evening. I want to thank Kate and the rest of her team for the invitation to do so. I spend a great deal of my life uh, talking about healing and the church and faith. And one thing that's at the center of it all, and what I'm going to base my whole talk on, is uh, the human experience, the experience of being alive. Uh, and in meditation, as you will all know better than me, we expose ourselves to some universal spiritual wisdom and values. And I argue this evening that there's no place that this is needed more urgently than when we try to understand suffering and healing. And so I'm very pleased to speak this evening on a topic that's close to my heart and to bring it into conversation uh, with the values and the wisdom of this organization. The title of my talk is Human Healing Within the Science and Religion Dialogue. And this is uh, part of some ongoing um, work and research that I'm doing so if possible, I really do want to engage with your insights and your reaction uh, to what I'm saying at the end. I'm going to speak for about an hour, just short of an hour, and then there's some refreshments and some Q&A. So I'm really looking forward to hearing um, what you want to say um, and have a conversation about it all. And this is particularly important, I feel, when it comes to talking about healing, a subject that is both um, personal and universal. It's everyday part of life but also can be extremely life-changing. Um, so, uh, by way of introduction, it's just interesting just to pause and think, what do we mean um, when we say healing? What are we talking about here? Because it's actually quite nuanced and complex. It may or may not be the same as getting better if you're ill or injured. It may or may not mean being disease-free. Um, is recovering or healing from a broken leg uh, different from healing from, say, cancer? What does healing mean when you're chronically ill? What does the healing mean when you're dying? Um, I didn't know until I became a mother seven years ago that I actual magical powers of healing. If you've got little children, the things you can kiss better <laughs> and the things I hand out plasters for, like sweets, for completely non-existent injuries and the plaster makes it better. I didn't know I had this healing power. I go to church services and experience laying on of hands and anointing for healing. Did it work? How do I tell what's going on inside? And if you go for had a particularly bad day, um, you might go home or go out with a friend and have a good moan and get it all out and say, well, that was, you'd think that was a healing conversation. You might say, well, that, that lifts the weight off my shoulders. What's this connection when we're talking about healing in our physical bodies? wide-ranging, uh, and healing, particularly in the secular word, world, is highly siloed. In medical science, the body is often seen as simply a machine to be fixed. fixed. I was talking to a, um, a friend who runs an, M, an ME charity the other day. She'd spent 12 years in bed with ME and had uh, been healed. And she said she felt a revolutionary experience when she was talking to medical doctors about her illness and when she realized that they were scared of her because healing and treating ME is so difficult. 
um, our medical system is set up to fix bodies like we fix bicycles. NHS is under huge pressure. Health and healing is tangled up with money and nice guidelines. And we are very far these days from the origins of our National Health Service, which began um, in the care of the ill by monastic communities and grew out of, of their work and their understanding as doctors and healers as being a vocation, medical side NHS. On the other side of the coin, there is the natural or, or alternative health scene where people can investigate and take control of their own health by seeking different options such as supplements or alternative therapies, acupuncture, massage. Indeed, the global health and wellness market, including all those things and organic food, topped one trillion US dollars globally. That's what it's valued at. Um, showing that not only do some people making a lot of money, there's a great need and desire for these things. They're speaking into a great need in our world for people want to heal themselves, largely through the mantra of connections between mind, body, and soul. Now, I don't have a problem with most of this, any of this. Thank God the NHS is here. It's the reason I'm alive. Um, and I, also have, I often have massage, aromatherapy massage, and I've tried hypnotherapy, acupuncture. I'm not saying there's a problem with any of these sides here. But my point is that I think there's something missing uh, in the middle, perhaps and the role of Christian spiritual healing. Jesus met and healed people along in his way. And in the early church and throughout the history of the church, there are accounts of miraculous healing, of uh, divine healing. We still today have the tradition of laying on of hands, healing, anointing the sick. If you go to church on a Sunday, you will pray for the sick. Um, but our voices, the voice of the Christian spiritual healing tradition, uh, it's not heard so much today in this vast healing industry. Indeed, it's sort of rather standing shyly in the corner, doesn't really know, I don't think, what to say. We've lost our confidence a bit. So my talk this evening, I'm not talking about the history of the church or uh, exploration of the gospel healing miracles or about the effectiveness of prayer um, or the sacraments. All interesting. But I want to put my focus elsewhere and ask whether our theology, what we know about God, and if you put it into conversation with science, best of our human ability to understand the material world, can both affect healing and raise our confidence in what our faith can say to the suffering world. The mandate of Jesus to heal still continues to echo what does that mean in a world understood by science? And how can we be confident interlockers in the cacophony of people talking about healing in the well-being market? So what I'm going to do in this talk, I'm going to uh, give us some techniques to work between these silos of theology and science. And if we're going to be able to do that well, we're going to have to be good interpreters interpreters of science as people who think about God. I'm going to give the example of cancer as a disease understood by science and then demonstrate how we might theologically interpret the science of cancer and how that relates to healing. I'm also going to talk about the role of storytelling in, heal in, um, in healing 
within the science and religion dialogue. And if we last that long, present an analogy for suffering and healing from chaos theory in science, chaos theory, how we understand chaos. Well, that all sounds quite dry and technical. Um, what I'm really doing, I'm going to do all that stuff. But what this really is, is a very personal journey for me as well. I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is cancer of the lymphatic system, when I was 21, advanced cancer. I went through uh, chemotherapy for six months, and then on the 21st of February 2001, I went into remission. I went and saw my consultant, and he said, you're probably in remission. Having fantasized about that day during my cancer treatment, I thought it was going to be this moment that everything would go back to normal. I'd get my life back, and everything would be better, and that I'd be healed. But that didn't happen. And um, I would say my healing took a lot longer, and it took a journey into the science, and the theology, and the experience to get there. And that's what I'm presenting today, really, um, but in a slightly more technical way, because I spent uh, a good bit of time thinking about it. So to begin with, I want to start with some definitions about what healing is. I go to whole conferences, weeks of conferences, where people just talk about defining stuff the whole time. So we could get stuck on definitions. So I'm going to skip over that and just give you my definition of healing. We can maybe talk about it later. So I contend there's a difference between disease and illness. Uh, disease is the objective, scientifically measurable state of ill health. Something's gone wrong with the body. It's disease. The disease is a cancer cell multiplying, it's a broken down kidney, it's a chemical imbalance in the mind. Illness, on the other hand, is the subjective experience of that disease. It's the self and individual story that lies behind the medical records and the drug lists. It's a story we might tell about our disease when somebody we trust says, how are you really? So when we talk about healing, part of the story might be, well, I got rid of the cancer or I got a new kidney, but it might not. Um, healing, what I'm talking about, is more focused on the illness and the story behind how the ill feel. So here's my definition of healing. Healing is not simply getting better, but the experience which leads to a holistic and positive change in self-identity and an increase in well-being. Healing is a transformational moment, which I'm not talking about time, just a transformational thing, that the ill, when the ill are reconciled with their divine image, their image, the image of God that's in within them, um, our status as beloved children of God wrought in our mother's womb, when we are reconciled with that, uh, when we find a resonance with God's love, despite what's happening to our body, and find peace. Part of that transformation might be a sense that we see the world anew. We have a new vision, a new purpose, perhaps. It's a life-giving transformation, which may or may not include getting better. This definition allows me to talk about healing when you're chronically ill, the hope of the disease going away. Healing and disability, healing and death. Healing is about reconciliation for me. Within the science and religion field, there's been a turn away from more traditional areas of thought. Most science and religion books 
in years gone by, in the last 40 years, have been all about boundaries or quantum mechanics or what do you do with evolution. It's not that we got bored with that, there's just nothing new is happening. And so people are beginning now to think in that academic environment about studying the human condition, our own experiences, as a source of knowledge about how science and religion might relate. This is a great turn for us because it means we can all be involved. We've all had a human experience of the world understood by science and God. We're all invited now to turn um, to participate in science and religion. And if human experience is the archetype of where they might overlap, I would argue that the most important human experience, perhaps, is suffering. How do we understand suffering? Let's study suffering, let's study healing as a transformational experience within the science and religion dialogue. Definition. Uh, and as a good scientist, I need a good, I need a method. Remember in school science, you have to have your, your, your method and your outcome. So here's my method. Um, I'm going to defend um, what I'm doing here. So human nature is complex. How do we understand ourselves, our experience, our identity? We can understand it biologically, sociologically, psychologically, all sorts of ologies. There's many ways of studying ourselves using the gifts of our rationality, scientific, and the scientific method. But I believe we're made in the image of God, and part of who we are as God's children involves God's revelation in Christ, the very same God who created the world and gave us our minds, has given us our desire to understand the world uh, using science. And so we're truly caught in the middle, I feel, between science and religion. Um, we've got minds and vocations to study the world, and therefore I would argue a duty as Christians to pay attention to science, what the science is telling us about the world, and use that knowledge to interpret. How, so how do, we, how do we pay attention to the sciences as Christians? How do we uh, use that knowledge wisely? I think it's important not to be dazzled by it. There's plenty of people, the scientists come on Channel 4, uh, who's that guy, Brian Cox, uh, will bamboozle us with science and then give a little philosophical anecdote at the end uh, to ex extend his, wis his, his agreement in giving wisdom. It's important not to be dazzled by it um, or to completely sell out to his insights. We must engage, I suggest, as Karl Barth says, ironically but polemically. Hold our ground and uh, listen to what science is saying but uh, try to interpret I'd also like to suggest we don't sell out to a conservative view of theology. That's the other temptation. You know, let's believe everything science says, or let's just stick with theology and what the Bible says and take a very conservative view. Because, um, of course, conservative, what do I mean by conservative? There's Catholic, Pentecostal, all sorts of different conservative interpretations driven by human desire for answers. But I think there is room and... Um, uh, and uh, a need to engage with knowledge sources outside of, of just the Bible or the church tradition, therefore a mandate to be able to look to science and what science is telling us about the world to learn more about God. So I suggest so what I'm doing in this work is taking a middle line uh, in, to address this problem, to un try to understand human health, healing and flourishing using both science 
and theology, taking that middle line and trying to do it with um, do it carefully. There's a particular habit that is human and probably to do with how the brain functions to break things up into silos, separate areas of thought. I've got work, and then we've got home, body, spirit, science, religion. Um, and things can get messy when you attempt to transgress these boundaries. Um, and so the question is, how do we exist between uh, the, the gap between science and religion? How do we build bridges? And what do we do to, um, to, to go between them? And I have the same answer I gave before. The human experience is, uh, lies at the centre of both science and religion. I don't want to say that... I, it's wrong, I think, to say that science is a thing. It's just intellectual rationality or religion is just a moral habit, as um, some academics have put it. Both science and religion are done by real people um, who are just trying to gain knowledge and connect, uh, whether that's with the material world or with God. So people are not doing science and they're not just doing theology. They're bringing themselves to the process of knowledge seeking, both in the science and, more obviously, uh, in theology and seeking God. But in science, there's a real sense, it has been for a long time, that scientific knowledge is personal knowledge. Um, Polanyi, who was a, a chemist and a philosopher, argued that um, science had a personal nature. The scientists entered into the process and they were part of um, the, their, their experience of the world was part of their knowledge seeking. And it must also be true, therefore, if they're taking themselves into the science, that emotions are at the heart of what drives science. Uh, Hume was um, a great uh, 19th century modern philosopher of science. He was at the heart of um, the definition of the scientific me method, an empiricist who's really set down how we must do science, how we must think. But what many people don't know, that he also argued that science is driven by emotion and the human experience of knowledge discovery is um, very much at the heart of science. So he wrote, um, he wrote this. What is the foundation of all our reasonings and conclusions concerning the relation of cause and effect, he asks. It may be replied in one word. Experience, capital letters. He goes on. Reason is and ought to only be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to be any other office than to serve and obey them. How often do you hear a scientist saying that what he does in the lab is to be a slave to his passions or her passions? The philosopher Fiona Ellis suggests that we begin our search for knowledge not being dazzled by the power of science to explain, but rather when trying to explain the world and the way that God might be moving in it, we start with the ambiguities of human experience philosophers saying we've got to begin with the ambiguities of our human experience. What better experience than the experience of suffering? So I've argued that the human experience is at the heart of science, and to understand this science theologically, we are okay to start with our emotional experiences. So we're all involved. We all have an emotional life. We all can engage with what science tells us about the world and use it to investigate theology. So a Methodist is taking seriously the emotional experience of illness and, 
and, and thus break down the silo, that gap between science and religion, between medical science and my faith. And to do this well, we need to do some interpretation, some hermeneutics of the science. So what I want to do is take my faith, my faith that I'm made by God, loved by, loved by God, created in my mother's womb, and take that for a little walk into, into the science of cancer, into oncology. Take the idea of belief that I'm loved by God. This body, my body was made by God, loved by him, and put it in conversation. Uh, with a bit of genetics about what happens when you have cancer. <clears throat> I talk about cancer because I had cancer, so I know a little bit about it. But I also think it's a, it's, a, it's a good disease to look at, to study suffering, because it causes a huge uh, impression on one's identity. It causes um, isolation and fear and a host of suffering and taboos. Uh, that are particular to cancer, but I think also can be applied more widely. Secondly, cancer is prevalent. One in two people now will develop cancer at some point in their lives. Yet despite it being so common and survival rates increasing, it's a disease that still provokes a degree of fear and loneliness, which goes far beyond the physical manifestations in those infected. I speak to doctors who say they would rather diagnose somebody with heart disease, which is statistically more dangerous than cancer, such as the weight of the word. Cancer produces a plethora of suffering, physical, psychological, spiritual, and social. Um, a growth affects one's identity and the control we think we have over our bodies. Cancer comes within. It's almost like the body turning against itself. The treatment is tough, destroying autonomy and changing one's physical appearance. The scans, the needles, the drugs, the radiation, they all transgress the boundaries of our bodies that we hold so dear. Cancer is subject to unusual levels of taboo. People are often uncomfortable even saying the C word. People avoid the ill, not knowing what to say. Cancer is a word, a diagnosis that comes with heavy moral undertones still, rather than a disease that's simply about uncontrolled cell division. Many ask aloud or to themselves, what did I do to deserve it? Cancer is a loaded word, one which is encumbered with metaphor, as Susan Sontag has said. Now that met metaphor, that mythology, is heavily, heavily dualistic, the common rhetorical response is a war metaphor. How often do we say or hear somebody's lost their battle to cancer or someone is fighting hard? This suggests by sheer force of will alone, cellular multiplication can be conquered. The corollary is, of course, that if cancer can't be radiated out or poisoned out or cut out, it's because the person didn't fight hard enough. So I suggest the language we use around cancer might inflict those with the disease with an additional complex of guilt. Cancer is not simply a terrible disease, but potentially a heavy label which carries a great weight. And the theological burden cannot be ignored. A Christian with the illness might ponder whether she really is wonderfully and fearfully made and created in the image of God. Given the situation produced, um, produced by cancer, and it's one I, I, you know, I, I, I felt myself and hear other people talking about 
I think, the key question for our theological investigation into the science might, is, can the science of cancer offer alternative metaphors for the suffering I've just described? Okay, so that's the taboo. Here's the science. So this is what we're going to look at, the science of cancer. What's really going on in the body? Well, I was I actually, I thought, I'm not a biologist, I'm a physicist. Um, when I read about cancer biochemistry, I have to say I was quite impressed. I mean, cancer is shockingly ingenious in the body. The tens of thousands, billion or so cells in the human body all work together in harmony, delicately observing one another and sending and receiving complex signals to work as one. All cancer needs is one cell that decides to do its own thing without consideration of the greater organism. This type of self-interested biochemistry is a surprisingly unlikely event, a hugely unlikely event, given all the cell division that goes on in a person's lifetime. But when it does happen, when one cell begins rapid and uncontrolled multiplication, the eventual effect is a tumor and death to the whole body. The roots of this lie in the blueprint, the genetic information in how a cell regulates its division. The key lies with proto-oncogenes, part of the cell's genetic code linked to reproduction and susceptible to becoming oncogenes through mutations of the code. The oncogenes are the cancer genes and are responsible for cancer-like cell division. The body has several lines of defense when this, uh, when this happens, one of which are other genes, tumor suppressor genes, which act as checks and balances to stop runaway growth. However, a cancer cell will just go and inactivate these as it goes along. Indeed, the cancer cell acts in many ways to circumvent the body's natural defense systems. It might meddle in growth signaling proteins. Um, it stops the cells natural clock, a cell will only naturally reproduce a certain number of times, then it will stop. Cancer will go mess with that to stop that happening. And uh, the cancer, uh, normal cells also have um, uh, a sort of self-suicide program if, if it detects cancer. The cancer can also go and deactivate that. Um, now the science of um, why cancer appears in the body remains a key research area. So what I described is what happens once it appears, but why does it appear is another question. Cancer always has its roots in things going wrong at the genetic level. How, how do these changes happen? Well, there's environmental links to DNA mutation that cause cancer. Uh, there's some uh, you know, evidence that smoking uh, might cause these, these problems. Uh, other cancers show the strong hereditary factor, uh, for example, uh, BRAC14 for breast cancer. And there's a strong random uh, factor, bad luck, um, random mutations, and it's, um, which can be difficult to predict. Age, lifestyle, and exposure to radiation are all potential factors in why cancer might start. Uh, most research says it depends. I mean, it depends is just like the mantra for cancer research as far as I can tell. Um, but um, it's usually one of three, it's usually a combination of these three causes, random mutations, environment, and genetics. So that's a really, really quick quiz through cancer science. So, got the science, let's interpret it. Given our theological background, what we take into the conversation, we're going to now do some interpreting of that quick quiz of science.
Hermeneutics is the art of interpretation that leads to understanding. So we're going to do some hermeneutics. It's not just interpreting. So hermeneutics is a factor in any sort of inquiry and at the root of how we gain all of our knowledge. We interpret all the time to work things out, including our own self-knowledge. It's a way, it's, hermeneutics is not just the get information gathering exercise. It's rather about how our knowing affects being in the world. It's a bit like when you read a book. I read lots of books, and most I forget, I forget them. Uh, but sometimes you read that one book, and, and it really changes your outlook, changes who you are and how you think about the world, and it stays with you. Um, now that's that's hermeneutics. That is interpreting something onto your own identity, your own being in the world. Um, it's 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 using something. That example was a book. Uh, to carve out a deeper understanding of the world. So what we're going to do now is do that same interpretation, hermeneutic on the sign to see if it changes who we are, how we are in the world. So my aim of doing this sort of method um, of uh, the science of cancer is examined, acknowledging that I'm clearly not a cancer specialist, but it's in the nature of hermeneutics that you're, you're often not an expert in one half of the conversation but we've got an ability to learn. So let's be confident that we know a bit about cancer and we can think about it and interpret it. All kinds of interpretation requires you acknowledge your own framework and pre-existing understanding. So I'm going to interpret science, but I'm doing it as a Christian priest. I've got a certain way of thinking about the world. I'm a cancer survivor. It's emotionally loaded. I'm a member of a faith community. I have an understanding already of how I, I, I exist in the world. I'm predisposed to certain ways of thinking about God, creation, and science. However, in doing my hermeneutics, I, I'm aiming to judge, judge my results, and I must be open to change. It's a subjective process. I can do this. You might want to do this as well. I'll come up with a whole different set of meanings for you. That's okay. It's subjective. Uh, but in the process, what I'm doing here is committing to working out the meaning of science for me to bring the interpretation of, um, of certain key theological ideas, namely that I made an image of God. And I'm aiming not to find new meaning in the science or project my own agenda, but rather discover a new type of being in the world made possible by the interpretation. So my key question again, if I'm wonderfully made by God, who loves me? Um, what does it mean when I get cancer? Does looking at the science of cancer affect my theology? Does my theology have to change? And does it help me in my healing to do so? So when I do this, I've got four main outcomes. So looking at science, once science of cancer, once it appears in my body, that all that um, the cancer trying to get out of the cell, stopping it divide, I have to say it does ratify some of those war metaphors. It does feel a bit like the battle. The cancer is trying to multiply the cells, stopping it, and it's you know, sneaking around the back door. Cancer cells do cleverly undermine the cell's own defense mechanism. It seems a bit of a battle. The science does prove that metaphor. However, my second conclusion, the science of the origin of cancer, whether it's caused by random bad luck mutations, hereditary factors, or environmental factors, disabuses any notion that cancer is any kind of moral judgment or any kind of personal attack on my body. 
the random nature of cancer emphasizes that this is not a disease given out in judgment. I haven't <coughs> do anything to deserve it. The science shows the cellular dysfunction that's at the root of that, that's at the root of the cancer. There's no external force. The origins of cancer is non-dualistic. Our status as being made in the image of God is not harmed by this random occurrence. It's not personal, it's not an attack, it's just biochemistry. Although it can be seen metaphorically, this is my third result, as a battle to be fought once cancer is diagnosed, it's not a battle against evil or sin or anything else. It's biochemistry in nature. Cancer remains the enemy because it kills, but its origins are not in sin or evil, which are at the root of that war metaphor, that battle metaphor that's so often used around cancer. So happily, all these outcomes allow me to preserve my theological understanding as wonderfully made in the image of God. So that's the first, sort of, that's the first bit, looking at the science of cancer. Next, I want to look at interpreting the story. Uh, the second part of my search for healing from my own experience, having looked at the science, I then went back and looked at my own story. What is the experience? Why is it important? How can it change us? Uh, the narrative has been shown to be important in medicine in diagnosing and caring for patients in holistic patient-centered approach to clinical problems. It gives the patient voice, a way to interact with their healthcare, and the clinicians get the whole picture and perhaps can tailor their treatment more accordingly. But further, narrative is seen in a broader way to be at the heart of how we construct our identity. We tell stories about ourselves. We reflect on where we've been, um, including um, our, our religious, our theological identity. It involves stories of how we grew up in the church and how we worship and how we've experienced life. Now, the diagnosis of cancer is a key life event which requires interpretation. Some survivors develop post-traumatic stress disorder. The trauma might be associated with the diagnosis or, or the treatment itself. Um, and it's, it, it can worry, uh, escalate into a trauma-type uh, um, illness afterwards. Now, studies have shown that some people recover well and would des describe their experience despite the trauma as positive, as something in which they found great meaning. Uh, where the process of recovery has led to positive changes in self-identity. And the key aspect of um, this type of post-traumatic growth that can happen has, seems to come down to the type of story they tell. Now, Arthur Frank wrote a book called The Wounded Storyteller, and in it he, de he defines three types of illness narrative that uh, you, you hear, you hear all the time. The first one is the restitution narrative. And it's a bit like this. Um, I've had cancer, uh, terrible, but uh, everything's fine now, and I'm going to um, go on and be the best person I can and conquer the world. Um, and it's sort of the Lance Armstrong cancer, cancer survivor story. Uh, it's a culturally preferred narrative. It's, it's easy to hear. It makes us feel comfortable um, because it tells us that medicine has got the power to heal, the professions have the power. Um, but in this story, there's, there's no space for chronic or terminal illness. The second type of story people hear, people tell about cancer is a chaos narrative. I've had cancer, um, 
I don't know why, um, and it's terrible, and it continues to be, I just, I can't make sense of it. Um, and it's a very hard story to, to hear, because uh, it's very hard to know what to say. But the third type is the quest narrative, illness as a journey. In the quest narrative, the ill tell their story, and this, in, the, in the quest, the experience of suffering is taken seriously, but is not allowed to have the final word, as it does in the chaos narrative. The person adopting the quest narrative neither lets the cancer be ignored, nor allows it to overcome. In the quest narrative, a new identity is sought in light of the experience. The meaning and the healing is found in the story, which I suggest can benefit from inclusion of the science and the interpretation of the science. When there's freedom to use our own metaphors, perhaps as a result of reflecting on science, as I've just done, then the quest narrative becomes very powerful. So interpreting the science uh, was part of my quest, but it was broader. Um, and when I went into remission, as I described at the beginning of the talk, I was sort of spat out of this amazing medical system that had cured my body um, and didn't have that uh, experience I expected of thinking, oh, well, thank goodness that's all over. I'll just get on with my life. Um, I instead found myself in a much more frightening place. Um, my life didn't appear to make any sense anymore. I didn't know what to do with life that I'd been given back to me. Uh, I tried to fit back in with my old life, uh, go out with friends, do the thing I was going to do anyway, um, carry on. Um, but that didn't work. Um, and it, and it, it felt like it was hurting me to do that. Um, I didn't, my, I changed, and I didn't fit back into my old life anymore. You know, like kids' toys you get with the, the circle, and you've got to put the circle through the circle hole in the square. I felt like I was being shoved through the wrong hole. It didn't fit anymore. Um, and I began uh, exploring why. I looked at the science of cancer. I had psychotherapy for many years. I looked at my history. Uh, but then I went on a real journey. Um, I'll tell you about that just briefly now because this, I feel, was my healing. This was just the moment. I thought, I need, I, need to, I need to find my way out. I was stuck in, in Holy Saturday. I was stuck in the da darkness and the death and the desolation of cancer. So it felt like I'd done cancer treatment. It felt like crucifixion. I mean, it really is. It's like um, you're being killed to stay alive. And uh, Holy Saturday, I was stuck. And I, and I couldn't get to Easter Sunday. I couldn't find the resurrection in my own experience. Um, and so I decided I needed to go back. I needed to go back to my, my Calvary moment and really explore that suffering. And the only person I thought I could do this with as part of my quest, I decided to go back and meet up with my chemotherapy nurse, uh, Jess, um, who I'm still in contact with. And Jess is a man. Uh, he's gay, he's a Jew. And we don't have that much in common, really. But what we had in common was that experience. And Jeff would sit with me for hours and hours and hours and give me my chemotherapy drug. And I, when I was in treatment, I met Jeff at cinema one day, and, and both of our horror, I threw up because the psychosomatic reaction of, of seeing him reminded me of the chemotherapy. So I, actually, I went back seven years later to meet him, expecting it to be pretty horrendous. Um, but what happened was um, I met a man, uh, and I realized that he hadn't, um, he hadn't abandoned me. He'd, he'd been there. And everyone in my life, he'd been the one 
she was cl as close as anyone could be um, to uh, my suffering. And he hadn't abandoned me or fallen asleep, but he'd been there, he'd been present through it all. And I rushed home after meeting, meeting Jeff, thinking, well, had I missed it? Like, why wasn't I upset? Like, why wasn't I sick? Why wasn't I feeling awful? And I realized that through meeting him again, I'd gone back to that experience of death, and it hadn't, it hadn't um, annihilated me, it hadn't destroyed me. And I realized that I hadn't been alone. And I was able, through really getting back into my story, to finding healing. And that was, that was my moment, seven years after uh, remission had begun, that I felt healed from the journey. So I've taken us uh, through a little bit of my, my journey, uh, journey into science, um, a journey into the emotions, but now we know that emotions and science go together fine. That's all, that's all fine. Both interpreting the science and interpreting the story are about one thing, healing as reconnection. Reconnection with self, reconnection with the, the world, our bodies, what we're made. And I go back to my definition of healing as reconnection. And that's echoed in our gospel stories. I mean, you had the demoniac who was healed and then reconnected back to community. The woman with the issue of blood was healed, was able to get back into her world. Healing, in the biblical sense, is all about reconciliation. Um, and I think that's, that's a broader um, quest at the heart of all Christian spiritual healing, is reconciliation. Because when suffering comes, whether it's illness or, or grief or any other kind of trauma, the main human experience that it introduces is one of chaos. Um, when you're ill, you lose your future. When somebody dies, that future you imagined is wrecked. Um, so understanding the experience of chaos, um, I suggest using both science and theology, um, is at the heart of what I'm working towards, which is a theology of healing. So I'd like to finish by just looking a quick peek into chaos, um, if you allow me, and, and, and then, we, and then I'll, I'll finish off, because I think chaos is an important thing to think about. Before we look at the chaos of suffering, let's just quickly whiz into the science of chaos theory. So that this sort of emerged uh, you know, in the mid uh, 20th century, and before that, every, what people thought was if you studied things carefully, you could predict the future of anything. If you sort of broke things down into their constituent parts, under, looked at them, came up with an equation, you could predict the future. However, when they did this, when they invented microscopes and telescopes uh, that were powerful enough really to look at the movement of, um, of atoms, they found that it was completely unpredictable. Like, it just, you cannot predict what atoms are going to do. And this is a serious problem for physics. Um, but they discovered if they tried to understand it not um, in a deterministic way, so not in an exact way, but by probabilities, if you thought where they probably were going to be, what emerges out of chaos is order. And you see this in clouds, in cloud physics. Oh, it's just completely unpredictable. No matter how big your computer is, you can't predict it exactly. But if you look at the clouds and zoom, zoom, zoom out, you begin to see patterns forming. It's the same on the formation of membranes. 
as well, and the movement of gases in the room. So this room is full of gas. You cannot predict it. However, um, if you zoom in and out, look at it as probabilities, then you're able to predict something as predictable as air pressure in this room. Now, that's all chaos theory. Um, now, chaos theory is very complicated equations I no longer remember, but what they say is that beauty and order is only possible because of the chaotic movement beneath. The unpredictable, chaotic motion at the heart of matter, stuff, um, produces order and beauty. Now, the first point is this is completely unex unexpected in science. And the second is, second um, sort of take home point, is that only if you understand our physical world as chaotic, then it's understandable and predictable in terms of the patterns that emerge. So let's just take that, that, that broad image and look at this theology of suffering. And the best biblical text about chaos is, of course, Job and his story of suffering, his story of complete chaos when um, God decided to take that wager with the Satan. So Job believed in the ordered universe where the good were rewarded and the bad were punished. And, uh, but God decided to let his piety be tested by undeserved suffering. Now, I'm just, I've got a few minutes left. Um, it's a very difficult text to interpret, and everyone argues about it. Um, but uh, let's have a go anyway. Um, so he's in this state of suffering. Um, he doesn't understand why. And his friends are telling him why and what he needs to do. And, um, and then eventually, several chapters later, God enters the scene to give his answer to suffering in the world. And his answer in chapter 38, God's answer to suffering, why does good things happen, why do bad things happen to good people, is an invitation for Job to enter into, into creation and to view the chaos within creation. That's, that's God's answer. So God says in chapter 38, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. So God's, an God's answer to why is it suffering is not really an answer, but rather that invitation to assess the created world and our place within it. And what he reveals, what God reveals through our chapters and chapters of looking at, at the created world and then also sort of sea monsters and Leviathan and all sorts of different parts of creation is one that man isn't at the center. But more than that, God points to this uncontrolled chaos. He says later, who cut a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the fun thunderbolt? God understands the way to it. God knows its place. Um, what's interesting there, this, this picture of, um, of creation observes of God simply cutting a channel for the torrents of rain, cutting, making, setting the boundaries of the torrents of rain, the way for the thunderbolt. This is um, a contained, a contained freedom. Um, it's a picture of freedom and divine order emerging out of the chaos and the creation of patterns within a system that's free. So God's whirlwind tour opens Job's eyes and pushes him towards satisfaction and an answer to that question, why do good people suffer? In the wisdom and creation narrative, we're given a view of the world which contains suffering and chaos, 
a world that God is not controlling, because then we lose freedom, but a world that he's, God's still nevertheless containing and being a part of, contained and created freedoms, not a mechanical universe of suffering, punishing sin, but a system with real freedom where chaos exists, where patterns emerge. There's a tiny brief study of chaos and Job in our quest to understand suffering and healing from a scientific perspective. We're just drawing three points um, to draw us all together. The first, um, taking my cue from Job, is that wisdom of natural things of the world uh, is part of the cure. Interpreting science, interpreting the best of what we know about the world, our bodies, um, is, I suggest, part of Christian healing. The second, chaos and beauty and order that emerges is part of the world in which we live, suffer and seek health. Um, and so by questing, by looking at our stories of suffering, by seeking healing within stories, we're seeking to find that order in the chaos. We're seeking to make sense um, of the chaos through looking at stories, looking at, at what's happening in our lives. And that, I think, is an important part of Christian spiritual healing. And finally, the wisdom texts, uh, they all, I mean, Job in particular, but they all suggest we're on a journey towards God. There's a, a teleology, a purpose to this journey. And I feel an, a, in interpreting suffering and health as part of a learning journey, never saying that suffering's good, you know, we're not given suffering to learn, but if we work to interpret suffering as part of that learning journey, we can find a pearl of wisdom in the Christian tradition, a pearl that might be of great value to suffering world, a very different pearl than the global health market is attempting to sell to people, but a pearl that's at the heart of the Christian faith and one that can offer true freedom, that idea that we're, we're on a path, a journey. So finally, to conclude, um, in this talk, I've taken us between the silos of theology and faith and the, and the science of human... I've taken us on a journey between faith and the science of the human condition and trying to look at some tools we can use to bridge and to explore um, healing within the Christian faith tradition. I suggest that scientific understanding is a gift and one we must engage with. We've got a duty to engage with the science. I suggest we have to have more confidence to do this work, to, to look at the science, and that healing as reconciliation with our image as made and, and, and loved by God is only augmented by, look, by looking at the science. I suggest we need to have confidence in our stories, and it's in the telling and the listening to stories of illness uh, that, we can find, that we can find healing. And that by listening to stories, telling stories, being heard, really being heard. There's a difference between telling a story to the cat and telling a story to somebody who's listening. But uh, for having your story heard, uh, we can move to find patterns in the chaos that suffering brings. And faith that order might emerge from chaos in the world. And that in that order we might detect God's meaning in the suffering. Finally, the, Christ, the Christian definition of well-being, of human flourishing, of health and healing must involve a teleology. We are about ends and not just about means.
suffering is terrible, uh, but we are reminded that our ultimate hope is in God's promise of eternal life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would put it this way. He said that health is a penultimate, not the ultimate good, and that there's plenty to be learned in our, in our traveling. So we, we've got some time for some questions. Um, and we're recording this. So if you could put your hand up and um, then talk into the microphone, it's really helpful for the recording if you have a question. Yes. Yeah. We've recorded the talk, yes. <laughs> Can I ask my question? <laughs> well, I was just thinking about, um, I really was sort of interested in what you were saying about emotions and science and that, the connection there, mm. but also, and I wondered whether or not that had anything to do with that whole thing about um, if you have a positive attitude, mm. then you are healed, mm. if you don't, then, you know, or, um, I'm, or um, if stress, you know, can, can um, contribute to illness mm -hmm. and disease. So I wonder if you have anything to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> I think it's um, linked between emotion and illness and emotion and cancer. It's part of the, um, it's, it's formed part of the, the history of the illness, which has produced some difficult uh, metaphors around uh, cancer, I mean, typically in, I mean, typically cancer is never portrayed in art or literature very much in the same way as tuberculosis is often, um, often portrayed as a great romantic way to die, you're flushed. Um, but when, when you die of cancer, you're, you're wizened and your life energy has gone away. And it's typically in, in, if it is represented in art, to be the childless woman or the bitter old man or somebody, you know, once somebody, and they die, they're left alone, and then they die of cancer as well. It's a, it's a disease which um, has been related very negatively with, with emotions. And the problem with, with that is that it can then lead to more guilt and more difficulty for the person with the illness. And then the question is, you know, have I caused this to come on myself um, because of my emotional attitude? So I think it's a question that's, that's fraught with a few pastoral difficulties. So speaking as a priest and a pastor, um, uh, I, I, I try to avoid that, that, that bit of the conversation. However, um, when, I, when I went into remission, um, my doctor said, oh, I knew you'd be okay because you had a great attitude. I said, oh my gosh, I'm glad I had a good attitude. <laughs> or, I, or I faked it really well, I'm not really sure. Um, because um, because the, the, the stories are that um, a good attitude does seem to help. However, plenty happy, well-adjusted people also die of cancer as well. So it's not, um, it's not a direct relationship between our emotional ability to deal and our chances of survival ship. Um, however, saying, having said that, and, however, and already saying one however, there is scientific evidence emerging in the academy on the emotional links um, between um, the emotional links to cellular multiplication there's um, a scientist who's part of the guild who's doing work on cortisol, which is the chemical we produce in our body when we're stressed, and how cortisol can affect cellular multiplication. And 
cause mutations um, and therefore cancer. So there is scientific evidence, but it's certainly not a, um, a direct relationship, um, uh, I think. So within, um, you know, talking about illnesses that are very serious, it becomes dangerous. But I certainly, um, there, there's good anecdotal evidence uh, to, you know, that keeping our stress levels low, given that we are body, mind, and spirit all combined, all speaking as, as one, and one part of our being affects the other parts, it is, it is, it is, it is linked to good health. I just as a pastor, I'm very conscious about making that link too clearly. Yes, I think as you, you said, or at least implied, I mean, the risk is that the patient is made to feel guilty for not having the right attitude. Mm. And that's why they're not recovering. Mm. Um, I remember um, quite a number of years ago now, there was a lot of discussion about the uh, cancer program, which was known as the Bristol um, Cancer Program. Now, that was a number of years ago, and you may not have come across that. But that raised similar issues, because um, the, those people involved in the program were claiming uh, a lot for uh, getting patients to change their attitude. Mm and that there were some patients who wouldn't change their attitude mm. and therefore weren't having the same mm. uh, recovery rate. Mm. Uh, is, is that a program that you've come across, or I don't know whether it's still being continued or not? Um, not as far as I'm aware, it is. Um, but I was um, at a talk the other day with um, a, a gentleman, uh, Fraser Watts, that you may um, know about. He writes, he's probably the most eminent person in spiritual healing in the academy. Um, and he's super interesting. He's a psychologist uh, by his first professor thing is being a psychologist. He then went on and studied theology and got ordained. So he does science and religion. And um, <clears throat> he was saying that um, he then got ordained and had to go work in a parish. And he had to do a healing service. And he thought, well, gosh, I better do it. Um, I've written books about it. And uh, he studied it as a psychologist. And, and he went and did it. And he said, you know what, it worked. Um, he had a story of a man who believed he was uh, possessed and um, did some spiritual healing and, you know, complicated case of um, neurobiological illness and so on. And he said it worked. It worked because of three reasons. One is obviously God, and uh, we shouldn't ever, um, uh, you know, get too scientific and say that God can't have an effect. But the other two major effects uh, were the placebo effect. Um, it's been proved um, very... Good clinical trials have a massive effect. Um, if you give somebody a placebo, they will have physical recovery. Interestingly, even if they know it's a placebo. Um, and the second is the neurobiological changes that can occur in somebody when, they, when they're involved in corporate worship. So the act of going to church, being surrounded by other people, perhaps repetitious movements, perhaps smells, perhaps touch. Um, evidence that changes our, our neurobiology, our thought has, our, the physiology of our brain. Um, what other changes does it produce as well? So it's, um, I think it's too simple to say, oh, change your attitude and you're going to get better. Um, there's much more going on that we don't understand about the human brain and consciousness and how it links to the physical. Um, and therein, there is research opportunities. <laughs>
got, nowadays you've got massive like Reiki healing groups and things like that and spiritist church. Why don't you think you've got lots of like massive Christian hands-on healings throughout the world? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's hardly any in London. But yeah. Why do you think that there's like loads of like Reiki healing groups but yeah. virtually no Christian hands-on yeah. healing? I think it's a really good question. I think there's also, I mean, what it tells you is there's a huge market. I mean, people, people want this uh, healing. I, I've actually had Reiki healing, and it, 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 something happened to freak me out of it. I didn't really understand. Um, but uh, it's, I think it's because Christian healing comes with a bit of baggage. Um, so when I say I'm the director of a healing, Christian healing organization, I will then launch into this big blurb about everything we're not. Um, because it's that, and it usually takes a while for me to get through that blur because it's quite difficult to explain. You need to set out a theology of healing, what we mean when we say healing. It doesn't just mean give me all your money and I'll make it get better. Um, but there's many people that want to give somebody all their money because they're desperate. Um, so the Christian healing has got uh, a bad name. I think there's plenty of people selling very poor theologies of healing and I quite often go to healing conferences and I'm doing lots of healing from bad healing. So people that have been taught terrible things, in my opinion, that you, if you, if you don't get better from prayer, it's because you're not praying hard enough, mm -hmm. or you've done something bad in your life, or you need to repent, or do, you know, all these things. There's a lot of bad ministries out there that require healing. So I think the more um, mainstream healing, anointing, laying on of hands, which is done in a pastorally responsible way, um, happens less because it's perhaps more difficult to teach and I think also we've lost our confidence in our own sacraments. Um, my husband's a parish priest in Barnard and um, for, for reasons completely disconnected to my job it was it's not connected. He started the healing service on a Sunday evening and he said oh, I don't know who's going to come, uh, I don't know if I should do any teaching or well, let's, you know, let's just see what happens. And he had 15 people on the first evening mm. which is a lot for us. Um, and it wasn't a Sunday congregation. It wasn't people that were there in the morning. It was this random hash bag of people who he'd met at funerals, mums and tots groups, lots of people there, and random people who were just related to some. It was people just turned up. And he said, the extraordinary thing is, I didn't need to do much teaching. They all naturally came for anointing and laying on of hands. There was something deep within them that resonated with the service. But I think we've lost our confidence. I mean, I'm only um, uh, how, about eight, nine years out of theological college, and we never got taught healing ministry. We never got taught about any of this stuff. So there's a lack of education and a lack of confidence, I feel. But I think we're missing a trick. I think we really are. There's something good to offer people. And that's what I do in the Guild. It's my day job. I was interested to hear what you were saying about your own experience of cancer and that when you received the news of your remission, you didn't straight away feel healed. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Was it because you were worried that it would come back and you needed some time to get used to the idea that you were better or did the illness change you in some 
profound way that you weren't the same person afterwards yeah. or some other reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it was a few reasons um, that you've already met, mentioned. I think when um, uh, you're in treatment for um, cancer, and I, I'm sure you know, we've all got people in our lives that have um, been through it, you're so held in the system, you know, I had my appointment card, and it becomes like your, um, your, your talisman, you know, you've got all these appointments, and you become more and more thumbed as you go through it. And it's like a safety net, you know, oh, next week I've got the radiotherapy, and I've got this and this and this, and, and um, it's a very clear timetable. Um, you're also in a nice, safe world as well, in the uh, chemotherapy department, I knew all the staff by names, uh, I can always, if a new patient turned up, I'm like, oh, this new person, this new person, but she doesn't know where the leaves are. You know, it's a, it's a world for a bit, it's a really safe world. Um, where um, having cancer is normal and was part of life. So there's a bit of grief about losing that. Um, like most cancers, I didn't know why I got it in the first place, so I definitely didn't know how to not get it again. Um, so there was a lot of insecurity about, about that. Um, I think there was family expectation. Quite, I think there's a big age factor in how you cope with cancer um, as well. Um, I mean, a lot of um, older people, if I speak to them about their story, they will say that they went into remission and they, they'd got their life back and they were finally going to do that thing they always wanted to do or, you know, you know it was a real release to new life. Um, the problem is when you're a bit younger, you haven't quite worked out what you're going to do with your life anyway. So it's even more confusing to get it back um, in a different form. And that was a big factor for me. Um, and family pressure as well, I was the expectation from my mum and dad, um, obviously who'd, um, it's a terrible thing to go, to go through from their point of view, thank goodness that was alright, we can stop talking about it. We can just go back to normal and pretend it doesn't happen and I'm, I'm from the north of Scotland which is very conservative, I'm Presbyterian and um, so it's even, you know, we definitely didn't do emotions and we definitely had to stop talking about it. Um, so, and, and that wasn't my personality either. So I felt the expectation that I had to be happy for everyone else. Um, and then I went back to my old life with my friends who hadn't been through it with me. I went, I was treated in Aberdeen, went back to London um, to start my PhD with the same people I used to hang out with <coughs> before I was ill. And um, nothing had changed for them, or that's how I felt. Um, and I felt deeply misunderstood. I felt like they didn't understand at all. And, um, and I was looking back, I was probably very depressed, a bit self-destructive, and luckily went into um, psychotherapy, uh, which helped me talk through all that, and ultimately find, find um, the energy, strength, whatever, to um, um, pursue my vocation, I, as I felt, felt it was. So cancer training was at the heart of all that, and recovery from it. that um, soldiers coming back from Afghanistan had <coughs> post-traumatic stress disorder uh, were encouraged to write their stories uh, and they were told don't worry about paragraph sentences you know grammar just write it yeah. write what you're going through 
And I think there's a huge difference between those who wrote the stories as to how quickly they were healed okay, and had come to terms with things. So I think what you're saying about everybody having a story to tell, or that part of the reconciliation yeah. Yeah. seems very important. But sadly, it seems that many people don't have an opportunity to tell a story. Yeah. Um, I was mentioning at the, at the break to um, to me that uh, I think yesterday there was something on the news about heroin addiction and how it's grown so much in this country. And there was a woman um, who was one of the examples that we interviewed. And not much was said about her own story until she said very briefly she'd lost a child and she, the pain was unbearable mm -hmm. and she took the heroin. Clearly that story yeah. had never been heard. Yeah. Or there were no doctors or the, the whole support system in any chance of hobby. Yeah. Um, so I think that difficulty with how people share stories. Yeah. From the Christian point of view, you know, we can see a bigger story that holds our own small yeah. stories yeah. Yeah. and is deeply nourishing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think we're in an age now that's so secular, there isn't that story for yeah. so many people. Yeah. Pharmaceutical industry is giving out all the antidepressants from the obesity figures. Yeah. There's a suffering level. Quentin, when I started my, my, I mean, I started looking at cancer and the whole healing thing and writing about it when I was in theological college. And the first thing I did was write it down um, because that's what you do. You know, you're, you know, if you're, you're, I wrote it down, put it in a blue folder and put it in my desk drawer. And I realized that was a, like my first little step. I thought, oh, that's, I can, that's my story. It's in the drawer and I can take it out if I want and I can put it away if I don't want. And I've got control over it. It's just about control, I think. Um, there was a study that came out of survival food after um, cancer. It was a really big study of how long people lived after they had cancer the first time. And, um, and it was across all demographics, um, different ages, male and female, um, and different educational backgrounds as well. A very broad study. And it, the results were the, the group that survived the, the least time were men in their 40s and 50s. And um, what the researchers put that down to, the conclusion was, tentatively, that that was the group least likely to talk about what they'd been through. Um, so I think there's, there's gathering evidence around narrative medicine. There's a doctor as part of my organization, McGill. He's a pain specialist in St. Mary's Hospital, and he's fascinating. He's, I mean, he's got this many letters after his name, and he's got access to drugs, and he's a surgeon. And um, he's a person that people are sent to when no one else can cure their pain, physical pain. But pain is very interesting. I mean, pain, you know, where is pain? Is it in our mind? And the stories he tells, the people he's cured, the conditions he's cured, simply by letting them talk and talk and talk. And, and he's um, very um, proactive in training young doctors around narrative, narrative medicine. Uh, my hope, my dream about um, this, this work and what I can do with my organization and in partnership with other organizations, crucially, is that I've got this, I think, vision that churches need to be a place where these stories are heard. We have to be brave 
enough to listen to people's stories, to create atmospheres or spaces or methods that people feel able to tell their stories. So almost like um, a beacon, a hub, a healing hub for the community. The people can come and share them. And we have a theory or a theology um, behind that, that this is, this is part of our Christian um, discipleship and mission. Um, mission of God, Mission Day, to be that God, godly listening to people's tales of suffering. Because after all, I mean, we're based, as you said, you know, as we all know, on a story of suffering. Um, the gospel is nothing but transmitted stories of suffering and resurrection. You know, we're nothing, we, not stories. We need to be a place of story listening, I think. this question, but <coughs> recently I've retaken an interest in my um, family history, and um, in my case I was looking into my grandfather who died in the First World War, and what was his life like, and I reread a book I'd read years ago called Healing the Family Tree, and it's about how illness can be transmitted or across generations, things like that. And it just struck me that that was a relevant concern to have, you know. And I, I, I don't know whether it's anything you could possibly have anything to say about, but mm. that, was, that was what's in my head, I, so I've said it now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I haven't read that book, I know, but I know what you're referring. And it, it's, it's come up a couple of times um, in conversations with people. We've got a, a lecture in Glasgow on the 3rd of November, and the former moderator of the Church of Scotland uh, David Lunan is going to speak. And, um, I'm sure you can't come to Glasgow when it's going to be broadcast on the internet. Uh, but, and he wants to talk about this. <coughs> Sorry. So um, I guess I've got different hats. Um, I think as a scientist, I feel um, quite anxious about that, about um, that uh, sort of um, being able to trace that lineage and provide evidence. However, on an anecdotal story level, um, it. Uh, and as a Christian, um, we're, we're, we're used to the theological concept of tracing back uh, who we are um, back in time. Then it's, I think it's worth, it's worth looking at and thinking about. Um, I mean, I, I love that show, Who Do You Think You Are? Um, when you go and look into family histories and you know, in positive and negative ways. And that's sort of the aha moment where the celebrity um, find something in the past that makes sense of their presence. Um, so, um, yes, so open, open skepticism, that's something that pe people are talking about that more. So. I think write down uh, 
personal histories of their family uh, about which they wanted to pray and um, they were put on paper you know as part of the uh, service uh, on the altar um, uh, in the same same Benedictine monastery as Florence Freeman okay I've been caught yeah yeah because we carry it, yeah, we carry it, don't we? Our yeah. hats with us. Genetically, but also perhaps in other ways. It's interesting, these questions of sin, I mean, theologically, it's got to make sure we're handling our understanding of sin and uh, illness and healing carefully. I would suggest if we're looking at things like healing the family tree, um, given our Hebrew, our Hebrew Testament background of this, you know, Sin being transmitted down the generations. I think there's um, important pastoral things to get right about that. Um, uh, but sin, the church doesn't talk about that very much in a, in a holistic way, I don't feel. So. Something perhaps Gregory could introduce. Right, Gregory is my husband, yes. and uh, uh, Paddy's in the church, church next door. Uh, yes, perhaps. One of the things, one of the list of things you can deal with. <laughs> I was thinking that you might, being a faith person as well as a scientist, talk about maybe any scientific reason for faith healing, whether you have any theories or anything to say about the scientific basis for any healing that can happen through prayer or laying on of hands or mm. any other methods? Um, I, th well, I think I've already alluded to placebo effects and the neurobiological changes around organizations. Um, I, I went, I took my very long-suffering husband <coughs> to the Wellbeing Festival um, at um, that place at the end of High Street Ken this year. Just sort of, I said it like, this is work, let's go check out this well-being market and see if there's any Christian presence at all. Um, and there was a little bit, actually, and it wasn't too cookie. It was okay, I think, and they were doing a good job of maintaining a place in that, that marketplace. But the other things I saw, I mean, I saw this woman lying down and she had lights flashing over her and somebody bashing a drum and the vibrations were going all through. Um, so it, it just opened my eyes up to the type of things people want. Um, but as a scientist, I think what's most interesting is those, un, those sort of grey areas, or the edges of science at the moment. Um, and the big, um, big areas are, is, um, is quantum mechanics and how do we understand our deterministic universe when science is saying that the basis of matter is um, unpredictable uncertain, um, but also um, entangled as well. So quantum theory says that every particle in the universe is connected to every other particle, quantum entanglement. <coughs> and also um, uncertainty, so there's no way to predict the future with any, you know, with, with certainty. It's always unknown. How do you reconcile that with um, a predictable macro-scale universe? Um, and it seems one of the ways um, that you make a crossover between the, the big level world and the small level world that quantum mechanics describes is via human consciousness. 
There's something about human, human consciousness delving into quantum mechanical systems that um, changes that uncertainty into certainty. It's all very mathematical. Um, but what is that about? And people genuinely don't know, and that's an area of study. The other big area of study um, is uh, um, human consciousness. And how do we scientifically under, understand what goes on in the mind? Um, do we have free will? Um, and how, and, and what's that link? I mean, space, point your head and say there's a brain. But really, that is, that's something that's made of stuff. And you get on that, in that stuff is my sense of identity and my history. And, and, and I believe um, also relates to a giant cosmic um, thing called God, which is consciousness. That's a whole area of science. And I think um, any scientist that um, says the universe is completely reducible um, to, um, to material, predictable facts, is beginning to find themselves in the minority. Um, most scientists who are working at these edges um, are at least open to the possibility um, that um, we may not get a set of answers, that science may just continue to discover uncertainty. Um, so I can't remember the original question, but yes, I think, so I think in, in science, the way science is going is opening up more que questions and more possibilities of conversation um, with theology, philosophy, and faith, such that I think it's arrogant of anyone to say that all that stuff I thought the world being festival is baloney. I just don't think you can say that. We don't understand enough about um, our world to make those decisions.